You are listening to the Hill City Church Podcast. Our mission is to become and make disciples who walk with God, connect with people, and impact the world. Well, I'm super excited. Today is our second to last teaching in our summer series going through Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. And today what we're going to be looking at is we're going to be looking at the family. Uh, The passage we're going through is what's called a household code. It's like if you were to go over to someone's house and sit down at their dinner table, you would want to know what's the etiquette? What kind of household rules are there? Martin Luther called this the house to fell, and that meant house table. And it's really this idea that there is a way that God designed the family to work. And a couple of disclaimers before we jump into our text for today. First of all, we're going to go through a massive text. We're going to go through a text that is probably too much to chew. And I would encourage you to go back later, especially if there's parts that are confusing, you have questions about, and really dig deeper and study. Uh, we could probably do a whole four-week series on the family just using the passage we're going through today, and maybe we will at some point down the road. So I'm going to be talking really, really fast, and there's also, this passage is quite controversial. Uh, There are some things that we're going to talk about today that are extremely counter-cultural, and what's important to remember is that Paul is challenging social norms, and and, and when Paul writes the letter to the Ephesians, he's just as counter-cultural when he wrote these words as he is today. And uh, the issues we're talking about today, really, I would say they are, you know, tier two issues or tier three issues, that they are important. But if you disagree with me, the interpretation that I share with you today, uh, I don't believe you have to leave our church, that we can actually be brothers and sisters in Christ and in the same uh, body, even if there's a little bit of disagreements between these things. And yet, what I would just caution you with, if there are parts of the teaching today that you find abrasive, that you find uh, there's resistance in, in, in believing or understanding, is to make sure that you're not throwing out or disagreeing with God's word and siding with culture just because it's the way you've always done it or it's the way that culture is going. Because I just want to ask us this honest question. Is the world's way of doing family working? Is the way that culture does family and does marriage and does parenting, is that actually working? Let's look at some of the stats. Last year, uh, there were 746,000 divorces. That's 45 reporting states in America. And maybe you've heard that stat that you know 50% of marriages end in divorce. And that's a little bit misleading of a statistic. Uh, but that's based on the idea that there are about double that many marriages in 2020, and and about 50% of that number is divorces. That's not to say that in the total number of marriages that exist, the number gets cut in half every single year, but the reality is the divorce statistics in our modern society are staggering. And the only reason that the number of divorces has gone down at all in recent years is because young people aren't getting married anymore because they don't believe in the institution of marriage, and they would rather participate in the hookup scene that we see in culture. Sexual immorality is rampant. Pornography use is rampant. A few weeks ago, we looked at that. Pastor Jake talked about sexual immorality in that teaching. Uh, The the pornography industry brings in more revenue in America than Major League Baseball, than the NFL and the NBA combined. And there are tens of millions of weekly and daily pornography users. 
There are even websites that exist, even if people are married, that function like dating sites, but for affairs. And so it's more convenient and easier than ever for someone to hook up with someone even outside of the marriage covenant. And so marriages are hurting. Marriages are crumbling in our culture. What about with parenting? What about with children? Uh, I was just looking up the child abuse and neglect statistic. In 2018, there were 2.4 million reported cases of child abuse and neglect. And that is heartbreaking to even have one case reported, but there's 2.4 million in America. And the, the primary age group of the kids that those cases were reported were under the age of one. And if you think that's not bad enough, 76% of those, it was the parents who were responsible for the abuse and the neglect. The family unit is crumbling in America. Well, what about teenagers? Well, with teenagers and young adults, the, the main issue they're dealing with today is mental health. And we know that we, we live in a lonely culture. Loneliness is in an epidemic. But there's also an incredible increase of teenage depression and suicide. In fact, uh, it's recorded in the Journal of Abnormal Psychology from 2009 to 2017. There was an increase of 60% in teen depression. And suicides are on the rise and things are getting worse and worse, especially when you consider 2020, all of the shutdowns and the pandemic. And so we can just ask that question again. Is the world's way of doing family working? Is it, doing, is it working? And I know there's lots of factors that contribute to all of these, these negative consequences, but primarily that those relationships, the, the spouse relationships, the parent-child relationships are meant to be nurtured and, and loved and supported within the institution of the family. And we can answer absolutely not. The world's way of doing family is not working. We need something better than culture. So before you disregard scripture and disregard the wisdom we're going to look at today, make sure that you're not siding with culture against scripture because where culture ends up leading us is it does not lead to the results and to the fruit that we actually want. We need wisdom. We need God's wisdom. We have to remember that the text we're going to look at today really is a continuation of the passage we looked at last week, which began with Ephesians 5.15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. And so today we're going to look at not culture, we're going to look at the wisdom of God. God created the, 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 the husband and wife relationship. God created the parent and child relationship. God invented families. He knows how they're meant to work. And so we're going to learn today how to follow the wisdom of God. So first off, we're going to look at the husband and wife relationship. This is going to be a long passage. We're going to read it all at once and we're going to fly through some explanation and application. So Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any 
such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now, there's a lot of, of, of theology and a lot of practical wisdom jam-packed here, but let me break it down for us, and we're going to cruise through this. What Paul presents here in Ephesians chapter 5 is he presents a complementarian view of marriage. And here's just a simple definition of what complementarian means. It means that men and women are created equal, yet given different roles in the family. And it's not difficult to see, like that's what Paul is presenting. He's giving specific instructions to the wife and specific instructions to the husband. And Already at this point in time, we can see how this flies in the face of culture to even suggest that there are two genders and that each one of those genders has any kind of differing role within a family unit is completely countercultural. It would be considered extremely offensive in culture. I mean, in 2014, you know, Facebook made a, a massive shift from having two genders that you could pick when you signed up for a Facebook profile to 56 additional genders that you could pick. Now, don't get me wrong. I, I, I fully believe that we should be loving. We should be accepting. Uh, we need to be careful about the culture wars that we pick. And yet we can just affirm that, that the Bible teaches that God created them male and female. And, and in the way that God created men and women, he created them equal. And that's what I love about this complementarian view, that, that men and women are different, but they complement each other. And, and there's this full humanity. And in Genesis 1.27, it affirms from the very beginning, chapter one of scripture, that God created both male and female in the image of God. And there's a beauty and there's an image bearer of the king. And even in Galatians chapter three, Paul actually brings this same idea up in Galatians three, verse 28, where he talks about there is no longer male or female. Now, he's not saying those categories no longer exist because he also says there's no longer Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free. Those categories that people fit into still exist. The point that Paul is making is that in God's kingdom, it doesn't matter what group you belong to, you are a co-heir with Christ. You're fully a member of God's kingdom. And so man and woman, male and female, husband and wife, there's this equality of worth and value and beauty and bearing God's image. And yet there are distinctions and there are differences between a husband and a wife. So here's the role that Paul says is given to the wife. So we're going to look at the roles for each one of these different members of the family. For the wife, it is to respect your husband as the leader God calls him to be. And I know that the word submit is one of the first words we see in the passage. Wives, submit yourselves to your husband. And that's a difficult word because it brings up this imagery of domination, of subjugation, of that sort of thing. And, and we have to remember this is coming directly out of the verse where Paul has just said we should submit ourselves to one another. When we're filled with the Spirit, we have this humility and this posture before one another. Now, here's what it doesn't say. Paul does not say that women must submit to every man. 
He doesn't say that at all. It's very clear from the text that he's speaking specifically to wives, submitting not to every husband, not to every man, but specifically to their own husbands. And so he's not giving this social order for society necessarily. He's talking specifically within the Christian household. And also what he doesn't say is he doesn't use the word obey, which is really significant because the other two kinds of relationships we're going to look at today, both the parent-child and the slave and the master, he uses this word obey. So, So Paul doesn't have in mind that submitting and respecting to your husband as a leader means that the husband makes all the decisions and you follow them. He certainly doesn't have this idea that, that there's this patriarchy, which you would have seen in the Roman Empire, that husbands like ruled over the house or dominated over the house. But simply what he means is he means that if you want to bring out the best in your husband, what your husband needs from you is he needs to know that you respect him, that you support him, that you honor him. Clinton Arnold says it like this, acknowledge the God-given role assigned to the husband and respect the leadership he endeavors to provide for the family. Respect your husband and bring out the best in him. Don't talk bad about him. Don't gossip about him. Like if you're, especially if you're in front of a group, this means a lot to a man to know that you encourage, you support, you believe in him. And when you pray for your husband and you, and you, you respect him for the leader that God is calling him to be, it actually helps him step up his game as a husband, as a father, and it'll allow him to be the kind of leader that God calls him to be. That's what Paul is trying to give directions for, for the wives. Now for the husbands, it's your turn. Again, we're, we're flying through this, right? For husbands, here's your role. Love your wife like Christ loves the church. Now, it's very clear to see that the burden in this passage, if you even just look at the amount of verses given to the wife and the amount of verses given to the husband, the burden is put on the husband. See, the husband has the taller order. The more difficult task is to love your wife like Christ loved the church. Well, how did Christ love the church? He died for the church. He served the church. He put on a towel and washed the feet of his disciples, okay? So, so it, like Paul is, is calling husbands to this incredible sacrificial kind of task. And he mentions three different kinds of love that the husband is meant to model his love for his wife after. The first kind of love is sacrificial love. What that means is here's a question you can ask yourself. If you're a husband or you want to be a husband one day, ask yourself this question. What would you give up for her? What would you give up for your wife? That's what it means to sacrifice. Christ obviously laid down his life. He died on the cross for the church. But odds are you won't have to take a grenade for your spouse. But what you might need to do is you might need to lay down your hobby and not spend as much time on your hobby and spend more time taking your wife on a date. It might mean you need to spend less time looking at a phone or looking at a TV and more time doing the dishes. Sacrifice. Don't be lazy. Don't be complacent. Be a husband who works for your wife and serves your wife and cares for your wife. That's what it means to sacrifice, to pay the cost. What would you be willing to give up for your wife? And then do that on a consistent basis. The second kind of love the husbands are called to is sanctifying love. This is what he says when he's talking about washing her by the word. Here's a question you can ask yourself. Is she more like Christ because she married you? Is your wife more like Christ today than she was before you were married? Because you actually play a role in that. And he gives this metaphor of washing. And really it goes back to the washing that a woman would go through before her wedding day. So think about that moment, right? Maybe you had a first look when your wife walked down the aisle and and, and she's in a dress and she's beautiful and, and she's prepared, right? Her true beauty is revealed in that moment. Well, you can actually bring out your wife's true beauty 
by helping point her to Jesus, by helping encourage her in your faith. And, and in order to do this, really what you have to do is you have to set the tone, the spiritual tone. You need to be being discipled. You need to be filled with the Spirit. If you want a Spirit-led marriage and a Spirit-led family, you have to be walking by this Holy Spirit. You need to be in the Word. You need to be praying. Pray with your wife. Pray for your wife. Pray for your kids, right? Set that tone and be that sanctifying kind of presence in your household. And as you do that, then you're going to bring out your wife's true beauty, the true beauty of her character, and, and, and you're going to bring out the best within your wife. And then the third kind of love that the husband is meant to model is a selfless love. Three times Paul says that you're going to love your wife even as you love yourself, even as you love your own body. The question here is, do you put her needs before your own? Do you put your wife's needs before your own? I mean, nobody needs to tell you to eat a meal when you're hungry. Your body is telling you that. And you're going to have this initial thought, I'm hungry. I should go and eat something. But if you're married, if, specifically if you're a husband and you're married, your role is when you're hungry to train yourself for your first thought to be not, I need something to eat, but to say, I wonder if my wife is hungry. I mean, the age-old picture of this is, is the man who, you know, his girlfriend or his wife says that she's cold and he takes off his jacket and he endures, it's a selfless kind of love, so that she can be warm. That's what you have to train yourself to do as a husband is to be the one. Your default mode is to take care of your wife's needs first, to be a selfless kind of love because truly the marriage is a one-flesh kind of union. You are truly united as one in that relationship. And the husbands, you are specifically called to be the one time after time. If one of you is going to pay the price and sacrifice and take care of the needs of the other one, the husband is called to do that for the wife. And so that's really what, what that, those two complementary relationships look like within a marriage. So here's my advice for you. If you're married or if you want to be married one day, if you envision that in your life one day, don't try and make the other person fulfill their role. Allow God, allow the Holy Spirit, allow scripture to, to grow them. Focus on you fulfilling your role, right? It, nowhere does it say husbands make your wife submit, right? This is a voluntary action. And nowhere does it say to wives, make your husband love you and, and, and argue with him until he loves you how you want him to. It, he gives the individual responsibility to each one of us in that role. It's a completely voluntary thing. It's God's wisdom, and it's how God designed the marriage to work. But when each of the husband and the wife focus on being the husband and the wife in the way that God designed them to be, it's really a beautiful thing. And there's beautiful fruit that actually flows out of it. And, and what Paul says is there's actually a mystery, and the mystery is that the marriage actually shows people the gospel. Here, here we can say it like this. A godly marriage reveals the mystery of the gospel that your marriage is actually an evangelistic opportunity, that you have the opportunity through both the respect and the honor and the love and the sacrifice, through how you carry out your role, you actually have a greater opportunity to show people who God is and how God loves you. The hard part is we're all still works in progress. We all still live in a fallen and a broken world. We're not going to get this perfect all the time. But if we try and embody the wisdom of God in these ways, it might look a little bit different in your household than it does in mine. But those are the, those are the principles. That is the wisdom God has for a marriage. And hopefully you can glean from people who are further along than you in marriage and listen to the wisdom and advice on how these godly principles have played out in 
their relationship. We got to keep moving if we're going to get this passage finished. So let's go ahead and jump in to Paul's words to parents and children. This comes from Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So right from the get-go, the next relationship we're looking at is the parent-child relationship. And we see, once again, that, that, that the child role is first. So here's what the role is for you if you are a child, if, if you have parents, is obey and honor your parents. That's simply put. That's what it is, to obey and honor your parents. Obey means to listen to, to do what your parents tell you to do. And uh, he gives the reason for that is natural law. It's because this is the right thing to do. I mean, every society, think about every culture in human history, they want the kids to listen to the parents. They know that's just the, the way that God intended it to be. And then the other aspect is honoring your father and mother is part of the Ten Commandments. So once again, in the same way that Paul talks about the marriage relationship and he ties it back to Genesis chapter 2, he talks about uh, the parent-child relationship. He ties it back to the Ten Commandments. And he says, honor your father and your mother. And so if you are still living at home, even if you're a teenager, even if you think you know better than your parents, obey and honor your parents. But as we get older, maybe once you graduate high school, once you're out of the house, that relationship changes, right? You might be an adult. You might have kids of your own and you still have parents, right? So what does that relationship look like in that way? Well, the reality is you never outgrow honoring your parents, Right? If you're outside of the house, the things that they, your parents w- once could have told you, commanded you, and you should have obeyed, it becomes more like advice at that point. You hear them, you respectfully hear them, you, you may not listen to them or obey them in that moment, but you never outgrow honoring your parents. You know, it still help your parents feel like they're part of the family, still value them, spend time communicating with them. And when we live that kind of life, it says it will go well with us in the land. You know, that, that promise is specifically tied to the promised land, but really there's this general principle that things are going to work out better in a church, in a city, in a culture where the, the children consistently have that posture of honor towards their parents. So if you are a child, if you have parents, then, then, then honor them. If you are still, if you're watching this and you still live at home, obey and honor your parents. And that is your role and your responsibility as a child. Now next, to the parent. Here's your role as a parent, is to disciple your kids. That's what he means when he's talking about bringing your kids up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. What he's saying is you must disciple your kids. That should be your primary purpose, not to get them into the best college, although that's important. Not that they would win the little league championship game, although that might be you know, somewhat important to you or to them, but it's to make sure that your, your children are brought up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Barna Research Group uh, brought out this statistic in 2011, 59% of young adults that's 18 to 29-year-olds, were dropping out of church. That's kids who grew up in youth group, grew up in kids' classes. That number has increased to 64%. That's around two-thirds of our kids in American church are walking away from the faith when they graduate high school. That is not acceptable to me. I mean, think about like our kids' class. If you were to look into our kids' class, into our nursery, into our toddler class on a Sunday, and you were to take three kids and just told two of them, Two of you are going to walk away from your faith when you turn 18 years old. That's not acceptable. We need better discipleship of the next generation. This is a big 
deal. This is huge. And the reality is it, 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 it is a responsibility of the church as a whole, but primarily it's a responsibility of the parents. Maybe you've heard that saying it takes a village to raise a child, but here's what I believe. I believe it takes a church to disciple a child. The church does play an important role in discipling a child, but the church cannot disciple your child for you. The church cannot disciple your child for you. What I mean by that is it's not enough to just drop off your kids in a classroom once a week and expect them to be lifelong followers of Jesus. The program that we offer for one hour on a Sunday, I mean, think about it in this perspective. For every one hour of Sunday classes that your kids receive, there's 167 other hours in the week that you are responsible for. And and just look at that ratio, right? For every one hour we get, you get 167 hours. Now I know there's school and all all these sorts of events, but the reality is the burden, the primary burden of making disciples of the next generation is put on the parents. And the church is there to assist. The church is there to facilitate and to support and to equip and to resource. But the reality is you need to take this very, very seriously as a parent. You need to take this very seriously. And there's three elements that Paul talks about with discipling the next generation. We use this passage, by the way, when we do family dedications because we want parents to commit to this, to commit to discipling the next generation. The first aspect is to bring them up. What that means is to create a safe and loving environment. The opposite, he mentions, is not to provoke your kids, right? This doesn't mean that your kids never get angry because kids get angry, right? They don't always like not getting their way, that sort of thing. But it means that your child does not need a drill sergeant. Your child doesn't need a CEO. Your child needs a mom and a dad. And they need to know that they can count on you to, to, to have meals ready for them. They can count on you to create a loving environment. They can count on you to listen to them, to pray for them, to cry with them, to apologize to them when you are too harsh with them. That's what it means to bring them up. It's to create a loving and a safe and a nurturing environment for your kids. The next aspect of what it means to disciple your child is, is to discipline them. I mean, the reality is we are all sinful. We've all fallen short of the glory of God, your kids included, right? I don't care. Maybe you call them an angel from time to time. They're not an angel, right? There's a sinful nature. There's the flesh. The reality is discipline means correction that produces righteousness. That's the point. And I know there's lots of different theories around discipline and spanking and non-spanking. And those are the kinds of things maybe you can work out with your spouse in your own household. Here's what I would say. Here's just a few words from me on how to discipline your children. The first one is to be thoughtful, not reactive. What that means is you decide on consequences to uh, uh, behavior, misbehavior, with your spouse ahead of time. You don't just react and do whatever you do in the moment because my my guess is you're going to react differently each time or your reaction is going to be based more on if you had a good day or a bad day, right? And so be thoughtful and maybe your kid does something new and you're not sure what to do. Get with your spouse and talk to them and make a plan. Be thoughtful about how you're disciplining your kids. The second uh, thing I would say is to make sure you're always disciplining out of love, not out of anger, because your child will tell the difference. They will know whether you're, you're, you're punishing them because you're mad at them, because you're ticked off, or whether you're punishing them because you love them and you just want them to, to live their lives the right way. Another thing is that discipline will change from phase to phase, right? It's going to be different, and you're going to have to navigate. So, so don't think just because you had a plan, that plan, you, they say everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face, right? So, so you might have a plan now, but that's going to change in a few months. That's going to change when your kid gets to school age and moves up throughout the grades. And so, you know, if you're still spanking your teenager, you need to change your plan to adjust it to 
their face. And the last thing that I would say is the goal of discipline is not to get your child to be the person you want them to be. It's to get your child to be the person God wants them to be. The goal is righteousness, right? And so, so pick and choose how you discipline your kid. They might be doing something that you don't like that might be embarrassing to you. And just, just try and separate your own identity from your kid's behavior for a moment, right? Because they are their own person. And really, end goal is righteousness. And so discipline them in the wisdom and instruction of the Lord. And if they're doing something that is, is sinful, is not what God wants from them, then make sure those are the moments that you really discipline them well. And if there's other moments, you might just need to say, well, I guess they're just different than me. I guess they're different than, than what I had in mind. Those are some thoughts for me on discipline. And the third aspect that Paul talks about with parenting is he talks about instruction. What, what it means to instruct is to teach them about Jesus teach them about Jesus. It's important that they know reading, writing, and arithmetic. It's important that they succeed in career and all of that sort of stuff. The most important thing is that they know Jesus. And and Sunday school or youth group once a week is not sufficient. I I think it's important, you know, get them to church, get them to the program. I think that's a really important aspect. And, And for a lot of parents nowadays, that's not really even a value for them. You know, it takes the smallest kind of social activity or extracurricular activity. To, and, and by the way, you're teaching your kids the importance of church when you choose those things over church. So, so again, these are just wisdom. These are principles. But I would say it's not enough even to bring them to church. Like read the Jesus Storybook Bible with your kids. Read scripture with your kids. Pray with your kids. You know, teach them about God. Tell your kids the things you are learning from sermons. Ask them questions. Let them ask you questions, right? When they have doubts and struggles, and they will, don't just shut those things down and say, you're not allowed to have those things. Wrestle with the doubts and the struggles that your kids have. And when we raise our kids in the wisdom, when we bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, man, we are going to see the next generation following Jesus. We're going to see renewal and revival in our culture. All right. Let's talk about the last kind of relationship. This is the slaves and the masters, the bond servants and the masters from Ephesians 6, verse 5. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering good service with a good will as to the Lord, not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or free. Masters do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there will be, there is no partiality with him. An initial question we, we need to address when we talk about slavery in the Bible is why don't they just say whenever we're talking about slaves in the Bible, why, why doesn't Paul just say, if you have a slave, set them free because slavery is bad, right? And we have to understand that slavery in scripture is a socioeconomic reality. It's not a racial reality and the conditions is really quite different. There is an absence of a middle class, essentially. So people were either really poor and they would sell themselves into slavery or they were forced into slavery or they were really wealthy and they had slaves, right? And and not that that justifies slavery at all, but I think this helps us understand why he doesn't just say, you know, if you have a slave, let him go. Although if you read Philemon, and I would encourage you to read Philemon if you have more questions, he does encourage Philemon to let Onesimus, his slave and, and a brother in Christ, free. Once again, Clinton Arnold really helps summarize this well. He says, when we read Paul's letters, including Ephesians, we find he never gives a theological 
basis for slavery. So he's not endorsing slavery, right? He assumes its presence in society and helps believers understand what it means to live as a Christian within this socioeconomic institution. So what that means is that if you take biblical, good biblical theology, you will understand there's no endorsement, there's no stamp of approval for slavery. What Paul's trying to do is he's trying to give us how to live as Christians regardless of what your situation, your socioeconomic situation looks like. But when you take good theology, it actually led to the abolition of slavery. And look at William Wilberforce. Look at, you know, the abolition of slavery in America and in Britain, that that the biblical principles leads to freedom of slavery. It it, it should never be used. And I know that it was in uh, in slavery in America, that, that Christians were using scriptures like this to try and say, see, there's slaves in the Bible, so I should keep slaves. It is a gross misapplication and misinterpretation of scripture to ever use it to justify the evil and and the wrongs done to slaves in our country. And and we should not use it today for that. We should apologize and repent of those things. That 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 is not where scripture leads us. And we have to acknowledge as well that there are there are results of you know that and implications like racism that still exists for today. That we need to fight against those injustices and even human trafficking and, and, and there are modern day slaves, and I know people, I know pastors who are on the front lines even fighting against those those oppressive systems even to this day, and that's really where God's kingdom, where scripture and good theology leads us. Okay, that's a little bit of a rabbit trail. So how does that apply to us, right? I mean, if the average person watching this, you don't have a butler, you don't have a servant in your household, you probably aren't one. How does this apply to us? And I think the best way is to take that phrase when he says, you know, follow these things, whether you're a bond servant or whether you're free, and and just understand the principles uh, of what it means to be an employee and what it means to be a boss. So, So probably you have a job or you've had a job or maybe you will have a job in the future. So here's what I would say to you. If you are an employee, this is Paul's wisdom instruction to you, work like God is watching. Even if you have a horrible boss, even if you you don't like what you're doing for a living, work like God is watching. He says, serve like you're serving God, like you're serving Christ Jesus. I mean, imagine that. What if Jesus was your boss? You know, how hard would you work? What would your work ethic look like? What would your attitude look like? And and, and a, a key, really a secret for regardless of what you're doing is look for the people in what you're doing. You know, you're not just serving coffee. You, you're brightening people's day. I love Black Rock Coffee. You know, on their coffee cups, they say, uh, fuel your story. They're not just serving coffee. They're helping people fuel their story. And there's vision behind that because they're connected. Not just I'm pouring cups of coffee. I'm, I'm empowering people. I'm helping people. So look for the people in whatever you're doing. Find out how you're helping them and work with a good attitude. Have a good work ethic. Don't just you know, be a people pleaser. Don't just work when people are watching. And that's really your wisdom for if you want to make a big impact in your workplace. And then for you, if you're a boss, you might be a manager. You might be a CEO. You might be a boss. This is what Paul's wisdom is for you. It's the same thing. Instead of work like God is watching, lead like God is watching. I mean, one of the most staggering statements that he makes is let it be the same with you. So he's giving the same exact instructions to slaves as he does with masters. And he gives a specific instruction not to intimidate, not to threaten, right? It's really easy, especially if you have a position of authority to kind of flex those muscles. But the reality is intimidation is not the same thing as leadership. You know, you should not lead in a way that threatens, that intimidates, that forces people, right? To lead is actually to bring people along by the hand. And the opposite of that is to push people and to force people into doing what 
You say the reality is the common thread in all three of the differing relationships we saw today, in the husband and the wife, in the parent and the child, in the slave and the master, the common thread in all three is he points us to who? He points us to Jesus, that Jesus is our example. So here's our main point for today. We need Christ, not culture, to guide our relationships. That's what we need. If we, if we want our relationships to have good fruit, the fruit of the spirit, if we want to have love, if we want to create the the good results out of our families and out of our society, then we need Christ. We need more Christ and less culture. We need Christ and to follow his wisdom to guide our relationships. It makes me think of Mark chapter 10, where James and John, the two of the disciples, their brothers, they go to Jesus privately and they, they ask Jesus if they can have the best seats in the kingdom of heaven. Can we get the best seats, the positions of power in the house? Because we're talking about power dynamics and leadership structures, right? And, and Jesus says, you, don't, you have no idea what you're asking, right? And the other disciples find out that they issued this request and they're, they're mad and they're fighting and all this sort of fighting. And Jesus says, what you guys are doing is you're acting like the Gentiles. And, and what, he's saying, what he means by that is he's saying, you're acting like the culture. You're, you're, you're treating power, you're treating leadership like the culture does. And he says, let it not be this way with you. And instead what he does is he points them to himself. And this is what he says. Don't come to, to be served, but come to serve. And he says this in Mark 10, 45, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And that's what we should do in our human relationships. And I'm here to tell you, that's the gospel, really in a nutshell, that Jesus is the son of God. He came to this earth and instead of using his power and authority for himself, he used it to free the captives. He used it to forgive us for our sins. And he did that by, by giving his life as a ransom for many, by dying on the cross for your sins and by raising back to life so that you can be raised up into a new life in him. And I just wanna tell you today, today can be the day that you invite Jesus to forgive your sin and to lead your life. And so today I would call you to turn away from sin, turn towards God, believe the gospel that Jesus is the son of God and he died and he rose again. And then also to accept that gospel, to put your faith in Jesus and specifically to do that through the step of baptism. We've got baptisms coming up at the park, September 5th, Labor Day weekend, Boise River baptisms. And we would love to to baptize you that day if you are putting your faith in Jesus. You can find out more about baptism. You can sign up at hillcityboise.org slash baptism. But for you, maybe you've made that decision of faith. You are a follower of Jesus. I would just challenge you to have less of the culture and more of the kingdom in the way that you are doing your family. Allow the Holy Spirit to fill you and to challenge you and to show you what the will of God is because the reality is we need Christ, not culture, to guide our relationships. Thanks for tuning in to the Hill City Church Podcast. You can find out more about our church at hillcityboise.org. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Hill City Boise. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you follow Jesus with everything.